Hello and welcome to Beckett Talks, the new podcast from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we'll be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today. Hi everyone, my name is Susan Watkins and I'm a Professor of Women's Writing and Director of the Centre for Culture and the Arts in the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University. Welcome to the first in our podcast series on COVID-19 and culture. Today we're exploring what we can learn from history about coping with pandemic and lockdown. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined today by four of my colleagues from the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at LBU. Dr. Henry Irving is Senior Lecturer in Public History. Dr. Nick Cox is Senior Lecturer in Renaissance Literature. Dr. Jessica Van Horsen is Senior Lecturer in Environmental History. And Dr. Eric Devald is Lecturer in Imperial and World History. Nice to see you all. Thanks for joining me. So, Henry, perhaps we could start with you, because I know that your research covers the Second World War. And certainly at certain points throughout lockdown, lots of comparisons have been made between World War II, particularly the Blitz and the COVID-19 pandemic. So I wondered if you could say a little bit more about the kinds of parallels that have been drawn over this period. Uh, Of course. And I think particularly in the early stages, it was very hard to avoid these references to the Blitz. So we had government ministers who were using uh, sort of wartime language. Uh, We had Matt Hancock, the health secretary, directly referring to the Blitz. Uh, And this continued. I mean, we had things like the Queen's speech, which used this idea of um, we'll meet again, uh, the Dame Fira Lynch song uh, as Mm. its sort of sound bed. And I think there was a real emphasis, uh, particularly in those early stages, on togetherness, community and collective resolve. And this this linked into the idea of a sort of blitz spirit. And of course, very practically, this was all happening at the time that we saw the anniversary of VE Day. Dame Vera Lynn died. And all of that, I think, fed into this idea that we were living through our own time of crisis. And this has continued. I I think the the links are perhaps less obvious now, but even in the last month, we've had a Spitfire flying over the UK, collecting money for the NHS. And so I think these links are still very present. uh, And only time will tell how they develop as we go into a a potential second spike. Thanks, Henry. That's fascinating. And what do you think about these parallels, though, as a historian of that period? Well, I think the first thing to say is that I'm not the only historian that's made these links, but I suppose I am one of a smaller number who think that they are worth exploring in detail. Uh, Not just the sort of the direct what we can learn from this, but also thinking about what these links uh, say about us and say about our relationship with history. I think the sad fact is that we're at a stage now where more people have died in the UK with COVID mentioned on their death certificate than died during the first part of the Blitz, so from September 1940 to May 1941. And there are very important differences between our two moments. So um, you don't need to be a historian. I think to realise that a virus is very different from a bomb. The impact of COVID has been hidden. Deaths are taking place out of sight and we see shuttered shops rather than bomb damaged houses. But I I don't think this is an entirely useless parallel. And certainly in that first stage, the emphasis on volunteering, mutual aid and sort of people's resilience, I think that does feed into uh, an idea of uh, what we might call blitz spirit. And these parallels have actually been backed up by some interesting medical research. So um, a recent article in The Lancet, uh, a medical journal by a professor of psychiatry called Edgar Jones, has said that this is a parallel worth exploring and that perhaps uh, it does say something about the way we're dealing with this pandemic. 
fascinating. Thank you so much. But obviously, your own research is looking into what's new in terms of what we're finding out about the connection between World War Two and COVID-19. So are, are there any new things you can tell us apart from some of these more well-worked parallels like between mm. the blitz and the lockdown well i think this is where i try to differentiate between yeah. um, the stuff i do with my public history hat on and then mm. the stuff that i do in my day-to-day research and i think looking at this as a public historian i wish we had a more nuanced understanding of the blitz yeah and for me the real issue with this notion of blitz spirit is that it plays down the individual experience of bombing so the wartime public were resilient. I mean, you know, British morale did not collapse during the Second World War, but it was still a traumatic experience for the people that lived through it. This is really obvious with those who lost loved ones and those that were working in civil defence services uh, and also, you know, ch- childhood evacuees. And the Blitz spirit, this idea that, you know, everything was OK and people got through, it overlooks, I think, the challenges that were posed during this period, everything from a lack of sleep through to the terror of sitting in the dark, listening to your city be ripped apart by fire and high explosives. And I think it's important not to downplay how difficult a period of time that would have been. And we see parallels with that with COVID. I mean, I've got no doubt that we will get through this as society, but let's not underestimate the physical and mental toll that this has had on people. So the idea of people coming together and always looking on the bright side and finding Uh, a kind of spirit of togetherness. You're saying that's not non-existent, but it's something that was also balanced out by people really struggling as well during the Blitz. Yeah, it was a challenge. And I think actually this perhaps then leads on to a slightly more positive parallel that we can draw, is that with the right things in place, this can be a success. And a lot of this is about leadership. So in the very early stages of lockdown, I worked with a number of colleagues, including colleagues from Leeds Beckett, to think about how we might play these parallels, what they might tell us about our current circumstances. And one of the things that we warned was that this outpouring of community spirit and particularly volunteering, that it risked being squandered through poor leadership and poor communication. And unfortunately, I think the same is still true. So a lack of funding for local authorities, a lack of leadership in terms of giving people a sense that there is an an active thing that they can do to meet this pandemic. In some ways, this has been a bit of a wasted opportunity, but it's not too late. Um, I think as a historian, I know that it's not too late for us to put these things right. Uh, One of the benefits, I think, of looking at these things uh, with a historical perspective is that it shows that change is possible and that no two moments will be the same. Whether it's media, history, English literature or creative writing, studying at the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University challenges its students to think critically and creatively about the world around us. Located in a historic city thriving with graduate employment opportunities, the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities is a community of widely published and prize-winning historians and literary critics, media scholars and professionals, novelists and poets. So, if any of these subjects interest you, whether you're starting out on your educational journey or wishing to progress professionally, go to leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash CSH for more information. If I could bring in now um, Jess and Eric, who've both been researching the 1918 flu pandemic, particularly focusing on the wearing of masks. Jess, Did mask wearing help curb the flu in the USA? 
The statistics on that sort of question are a bit obscure. We still don't know how many people actually died of the 1918 pandemic, but it is estimated to be up to 100 million people across the world. What I think is really interesting about the 1918-1919 flu pandemic is that it was really the first test of the public understanding of germ theory, which was developed in the 19th century and helped people get an appreciation for how viruses spread and that indeed they could be spread through droplets coming from people's faces, <laughs> to okay. put it uh, nicely. And of course, it happened during not the Second World War, as Henry's focusing on, but the First World War. And at the end of the First World War is really when it exploded around mm. the world with all of these troops traveling. But that meant that the Red Cross was fully mobilized to make masks, to inform the public about masks and how they would be beneficial in preventing the spread of disease. And indeed, the wartime spirit of the First World War enabled people to really take that advice to heart. And so right. the Red Cross advised four folds of cheesecloth to cover your mouth, sprayed with a bit of Listerine. Right. Um, I, I think that our masks today are maybe a bit more comfortable because they also taped them around their heads. It did indeed seem to stop the spread. So everyone had to make their own. I mean, obviously, I guess at that time. In well, the Red Cross would have sort of mask making events and the women who were home making bandages and things like that for the wartime effort would be mobilized to make masks instead. Stories of posh women wearing fine mesh veils instead of proper masks because they wanted to look stylish while out on the town. Those were useless. Um, <laughs> But um, the, it, it's, it's interesting because like today, we did have North America did see what they called mask slackers ah, um, during 1918-19. And those would be people who would refuse to wear masks in places that you had to, like on public transportation or in, in shops. Right. Um, but they also would cut holes in their masks so they could smoke through them. Um, which <laughs> makes the mask totally ineffective. And there were also maskless street parties that were popping up all across North America as well. Right. And you could see at the end of the, of the First World War in November 1918, suddenly the wartime spirit, not that it was a blitz spirit, vanished. People wanted to celebrate the end of the war. Mm. They wanted to go out, hug their neighbors, hug their families. And that really did trigger a second wave. So because war effort was going on anyway, do you think that that was slightly remobilized in a sense to kind of deal with the flu or was that not really an issue? It was a huge issue and it's part of sort of the, the flu propaganda in a way that a lot of the advertisements to stay conscious of the flu as, a, as sort of an unseen enemy yeah. uh, popped up everywhere and this play on germs and Germans um, in a lot of the government propaganda during the 1918-19 pandemic, you had to be careful of Germans, but you also had to be careful of germs. And so you ah, had to remain okay. against both. Right. That's fascinating. And, and Eric, I know you've also been looking at Southeast Asia. What were the similarities and differences there with North America? I, I guess the, the biggest differences would be that, I mean, certainly compared with North America, the sort of public health infrastructure that Jess pointed to that fueled partly by germ theories had sprung up in, in Western Europe and 
North America in the later parts of the 19th century, it was much more fledgling in Southeast Asia. So the ability of the, the colonial governments of Southeast Asia to mass mobilize people to do things like wear face masks wasn't really in existence. Mm. Um, there was widespread knowledge and widespread public education efforts. Um, and there were real public health and medical efforts to do things that we would recognize today, like cleaning houses and cleaning yourself and obviously uh, isolating and quarantining the sick, or even more drastic measures like closing public establishments right. were taken. But there seems to have been very little effort to convince most people outside of medical settings in Southeast Asia in 1918, 1919 to wear face masks. Right. What we see today of sort of Asians, East Asians and Southeast Asians in particular, wearing masks and wearing masks in ways, you know, that were uh, in the West, as the British prime minister said this week, in some countries, people argue that people are too freedom loving to wear masks. These days, obviously, we don't tend to see those arguments in East Asia. And if we want to understand why, we sort of have to look much later for face mask wearing cultures. But in terms of people adhering to public health information, governments believing that they should tell their citizens or their subjects to adhere to these rules, we see that much earlier with the 1918-19 uh, pandemic. But I'd like to point out one thing that is a big difference I saw mm -hmm. was that uh, in my research so far, there's a big difference, probably not too surprising given the colonial context of Southeast Asia, that there also seems to have been a reluctance on the part of some white people, French people in the case of the place I study, Vietnam, but the elites as well, to believe that it simply wasn't worth trying to educate the masses because in the racist language of empire, you know, people from Asia and Africa were, were sort of understood to, to not be able to be educated about the dangers of, of public health to themselves. Um, wow. So we see quite different to today where at least in the West, our governments and in Southeast Asia, governments seem to believe that they can tell or they have a duty to tell citizens who will act accordingly, whereas we didn't see that in Southeast Asia in 1918-19. And again, I, say, I would say that that has a lot to do with the imperial and colonial context. Right, of course. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I mean, what do you both think the wearing of masks symbolizes, apart from obviously the, the public health and personal health concerns and, and issues? Because I know that you're both looking slightly more widely in your research as, as well into what mask wearing means. Yeah, I mean, I would, sorry, I, I would say that I don't think it shouldn't, it doesn't need to symbolize anything. Mm, I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, it's like wearing a hat in the sense that, you know, it doesn't need to mean anything except that you want to protect yourself um, in the same way that hat protects a cold head. But obviously it varies greatly. But what we're, I suppose, learning from, from COVID today is that it's so intimately connected with cultural and yeah. heritage, but also very much so with politics. I mean, if we just look around Europe today, we can see, you know, the politics of what a face mask means, whether you're a man or a woman even, right. varies greatly just between, you know, uh, the, the nations of Britain or, or the, the countries of Europe. So it a lot, which is obviously both fascinating and curious and immensely frustrating at the present time. Okay. Jess, do you have any thoughts on that question as well? Or Yeah, I, I do. And that's something that Eric and I spoke about a lot in our first kind of discussions about this, this project more broadly is that I sort of see mass as a culturally weighted technology. Absolutely. Yeah. And that it, it's a symbol in a lot of ways of, of citizenry and responsibility, public responsibility, but also how 
societies understand risk, how government understands risk. If you have the leader of the United States not really endorsing mask wearing, that has a direct relation to how many people in that country wear masks and support that idea and, and feel like it's their right to not wear a mask. Whereas okay. in that 1918-19 pandemic, it was everyone's duty to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, there's, there was, there's been a shift in, uh, in, in my research case, uh, Western culture mm-hmm. in, in certain ways that is really fascinating. And, and it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds as, as the pandemic continues. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you. If, if I may come in there as well, Susan, because I think there is an interesting parallel with, with what Jessica's just said about the distinction between individual and collective responsibility. When we look at um, some of the civil defence measures that were put in place during the Second World War, and I'm thinking here of the distinction between carrying a gas mask, which was about your personal protection and was, although legally was, you know, legally it was responsibility, many people decided that they didn't want to carry that because they were making the decision that they themselves would be okay, compared to something like the blackout, where your actions in leaving a light on could put a whole community at risk. Right. And I think those distinctions are important. At the moment, we seem to be in a position in the UK where the mask is still seen as an individual means of protection rather than a collective one. And I think that's a real challenge in terms of the education. It was a challenge that faced the Second World War uh, government as well. There are around a million prosecutions for people uh, not abiding to blackout restrictions. But by and large, people bought into that idea that you were keeping everyone safe. And I think that's the challenge that we face today. Yes, I think that's right. Jump in there for a second, just to pick up on that. I mean, you could say as well, though, even even the whole way that framing the, the question of this technology of masks in terms of individual liberty versus collective responsibility is in many ways a very Western way of looking at it. I mean, that's not a conversation, for example, that that you would typically find in Vietnam of juxtaposing those two things. They're the same. Yes. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. There's no opposition between me and the people around me protecting one is protecting the other so so I, I that's simply to say you're absolutely right henry i mean in what you're saying but but you could even step back one one step further and see that whole frame as 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 a historical and, and cultural construct and now i'd like to bring in nick who's a literature specialist and particularly nick i know that you're interested in how plague affected theatre in the time of Shakespeare and obviously the situation with our own cultural industries and particularly live theatre is is a really serious one during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I wonder if there are any parallels between how Shakespeare's theatre was affected by plague and how the theatre lockdowns that we're seeing during the pandemic now, if there are any similarities that you could point to for us. Yeah, well, there are, I mean, the, the obvious uh, similarity is that in Shakespeare's society, you know, theatres were seen as one of those places where plague was spread. I mean, there, there is no kind of understanding in terms of things, concepts like germ theory, as you know, right. uh, Jess was, was suggesting. But they did kind of understand that uh, bodies in close proximity were a source of the spread of infection. So theatres were identified very early on as a kind of uh, public health risk and therefore okay. oh. shut down. I mean, I think it's it's interesting that, um, you know, a lot of the 
immediate kind of response to theatre closures in this country was that this was kind of unprecedented and that you know this sort of closure of culture as it were was something which 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 was kind of catastrophic and kind of unprecedented mm. and I think what's what's striking is the the sense in which looking at Shakespeare's period we know that theatre closure wasn't you know it wasn't unprecedented in the sense that it did happen in in his culture and it happened repeatedly actually right. throughout his throughout his career and it could be it could have really really serious effects on theatre companies I mean in the early 1590s you know theatre companies are sort of splitting up fragmenting and reforming in a fairly kind of chaotic uh, fashion because of the effect of visitations of the plague but it looks as if when theatres kind of got going again when they did reopen that you know Shakespeare was able to kind of get going again with, with them so that there's this sort of sense of it being an utter catastrophe for culture I think is is something that needs to be kind of you know balanced with that sort of sense that it, it, it can kind of revive but I think there is you know the, the interesting parallel is that you know in, in some ways the theatre profession certainly in Shakespeare's day was a very precarious one it's very kind so, of low status sorry do, do you mean that in a sense they were almost expecting you know outbreaks of plague it was more quotidian in a sense and so they had yeah. to kind of react and reform and it wasn't the the desire well obviously it was disastrous but it wasn't unexpected in a sense is that is that I, what you mean i think certainly by yeah by the middle 1590s certainly i mean there's a very very serious epidemic you know, in the sort of 1593, 1594 period, when the theatres are closed for about 20 months. Okay. And I think at that point, some people, Shakespeare included, sort of started to think, well, actually, are we going to have to do something else? You know, are we going to have to turn to other kinds of um, cultural practice yeah. in order to, to sort of sustain time. a career? Mm. Um, but I think um, by that stage, theatre, I mean, the the buildings are in place and so there is a kind of institutional kind of basis for theatre in London by that stage so it then becomes possible you know once there are you know once things are a bit easier for things to kind of to reopen and I think that the, the situation in in Shakespeare's day is that yes you, you're right people start to kind of live with the idea that you have to kind of adjust to that possibility really. How did it affect his own work? I mean I know that King Lear is seen as a play that, that's a consequence of, of one of a plague outbreak. Could you just say a, a bit about that? Well certainly I think I mean if I can go back to that sort of early 1590s moment sort of 1593, mm. 1594 first I think during that sort of prolonged lockdown if you will he starts to look at other kinds of possible outlets so he turns to writing long narrative poems for print publication so he becomes in a sense an author who's looking at the kind of new print market in London as his kind of possible way of sustaining a career and I think there is that sort of sense around about at that point that okay you know things might not return I mean the the authorities certainly in London were very hostile to theatre anyway mm. so there is a sense that plague was a kind of opportunity for them to sort of say okay let's just get rid of this disorderly and kind of vicious practice that um, theatre is you know um, 
this sort of source of disorder and, and vice in the capital. So they're seeing play almost as a kind of opportunity to kind of, kind of close it down. Right. Um, so I think at that point, he does sort of seem to look at alternative forms of, of activity. But, uh, and I think there's, there is a kind of important point there about our understanding of the way in which Shakespeare kind of worked in the sense that, you know, there's a, it's possible to sort of assume that, you know, a lockdown would be a great kind of opportunity for someone like Shakespeare, you know, if you view him as this kind of lofty genius working in isolation somewhere. But So he could have just got on with his own work kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. What you mean is that he needed the, you know, his, his, his other actors and players and everything else to, to function. Yeah, I think the the sort of sense we get from the way in which his writing productivity kind of coincides with sort of outbreaks of plague is that, yeah, he seems to have needed, as it were, that kind of context, that creative context mm. that the theatre provided. The culture. Um, yeah, I mean, the kind of, I think, you know, what that sort of suggests is that he was much more a kind of collaborative writer than um, we've perhaps been led to led to believe, and that he needed that kind of interaction with other actors, other writers, and with an audience. I think in order for the kind of creative stimulus to sort of um, get going. Okay. Um, and, and after the twenty-month closure, what did he move on to um, create in terms of? play plays after the theatres were reopened that period between about 1594 and 1602 is the kind of when there aren't any outbreaks or, or at least not serious enough to cause further closures of the of the playhouses that's really the kind of most productive phase of his career so there's 27 plays wow that um, he produces from that kind of period onwards so, you know, in a sense, most of the kind of, or many of the kind of better known works. I mean, you mentioned King Lear. The interesting thing about King Lear is that um, that comes up just after this sort of um, uh, epidemic around 1603, 1604, probably. Uh, he's probably writing it during during that, that sort of historical moment. Mm. And actually the kind of period after 1600 seems to be a bit more intermittent because there are again much more sort of severe outbreaks and there are periods of sort of theatre closure so I think our sort of sense of what Shakespeare how Shakespeare's sort of impacted by all this is that the, the, the kind of rhythm of epidemics seemed almost to kind of shape the rhythm of his own kind of writing practice as it were so there are all sorts of interesting ways in which the epidemics kind of shape Shakespeare's productivity. Mm, that, that really is fascinating and, and I suppose it's a it's a good way we might want to conclude by thinking about positive creative renewal emerging out of lockdown and pandemic at least it's something that we can hope for on that note, I'd just like to thank colleagues who've taken part today. Thank you, Henry, Nick, Jess and Eric for taking part. If I could remind listeners, if you want to know more about my colleagues' work, you can check out their podcast contributors' blogs in the LBU Together series on Leeds Beckett University's website. 
and look out for the next in our series of podcasts, Culture and COVID-19. The next will cover changes to our lives and how we engage with culture during the pandemic. Thanks for listening. The podcasts in the Beckett Talk series are released every Tuesday. So don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode. Hope to see you next week.